Well, we welcome you this morning. Grateful for the, uh, especially the, uh, just the service so far has really been an encouragement. I, I really enjoyed the sharing time. And um, in some ways, it sort of seems like this could almost be an interruption. But I know it's not. I know that God has given a message that he wanted me to share. But I do thank each one of you that uh, shared in the, uh, of uh, what you did. I just believe that this is a way that we can <clears throat> do church on a, day, on a regular basis and hear what God is doing. And I just think it's a testimony that our children need to hear the good things that God is doing in our lives. And that it's not just something out there, a person out there, being out there that we abstractly worship, but it's a God that is with us every day of the week. Also, just a pleasure to have Loyal here with us. We got to know Brother Loyal up in, north, in uh, northern, uh, northwestern Ontario during our years there. And, uh, yeah, I just appreciate his life. I told him after Sunday school, had I known that he was going to be here, I may have tapped him on the shoulder. Uh, to uh, share a message with us, but he uh, assured me there's probably a reason I didn't know, so we'll leave it with that. <clears throat> well, I'd like to reach back to the, uh, yeah, I just before I go into the message, just want to say I, I have been fighting a cold, um, and I've had a lot of remedies given to me that I should try, but uh, I, it's, been, it's been close to a month, and I am sick and tired of it. Um, and um, I, I hope that's not a distraction to you this morning. I'll try my best not to let it be. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's just been an ongoing thing. Back at the uh, Valentine's banquet already, I've had, I think at that point, I had it two weeks. That I remember praying that God would take care of it so that we can sing that evening, and he did. And it sort of seemed to clear up, and then just right after that, it just came back with a vengeance again. So, anyhow, here's where we're at. Well, I'd like to reach back to the, uh, the last message that I shared, and uh, it was a message entitled Parenting Vision, Parental Vision, First and Second Things. I don't know if you recall or not what I shared on that, and it's uh, just uh, going on with this series of, of family, strengthening families, but I wonder if you could highlight for me several of the things that we touched on in the last message. I know it's been a little while ago. Uh, actually, last Sunday was my turn, and, and for various reasons I didn't but preach last Sunday. But can you, can you reach back and just point out some of the highlights of that message? Because today is a continuation of that. What comes to your mind? Anything that you recall? concerning the, uh, the message that I, I shared, well, probably five, six weeks ago. Parental vision, first and second things. Putting you to the test. All right, I'll prod you along a little bit. One of the things we talked about is that the Old Testament basically had structured itself around the family. What is the New Testament structured around? The church, yes, absolutely. So whenever there are two principles, 
that runs side by side. Oftentimes we tend to take one over the other. And maybe that's a wrong concept. When there's a first and second thing, the first thing holds a place of priority and focus and emphasis. It's the anchor in which the other principles revolve around. So don't separate it from the first thing. The second thing is encompassed around the first thing. So in the case of the church and the family, thank you, for the church and the family, the church becomes the anchor. It's, it's the place of priority. And then the family should never be separated from the church. The church should attach itself, sorry, the family should attach itself to the church. Now our culture, like I had mentioned I think that day, tends to oftentimes actually reverse these. We make the family the center, and we add the church to it. But that is not what Jesus taught us when it comes to the kingdom of God. Repent, uh, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And then I would also just add that when it, if we keep that in mind, that the church, the kingdom of God, is first and foremost, then as we parent our children, I, I, I used a diagram that I said we developed today, but I gave you the last point first, okay? I ended with this point. As we think about having the kingdom of God first and foremost in our lives, the church of Jesus Christ, Parenting, then, our vision for parenting should be to raise sons and daughters who love God supremely. That should be the goal. And Val, Brother Val emphasized that as well when he taught us on the beauty of holiness. Remember what he said about Adam and Eve? He tried to do it with Adam and Eve, that they would display his beauty in a perfect environment, and they failed. And so he gathered the Israelites, and he wanted a special group of people to display his holiness, and they failed. And now in the New Testament, we come along, and he says, you know what, I'm going to let the church be that dynamic example of displaying my holiness to a world that is dying and decaying. And, and that is... That is the goal of, of parenting is to raise sons and daughters who will become part of that movement. Now, I qualified that saying that we as parents, we can't make that decision for our children. I think, I, was it Iva that you mentioned there are no, no, uh, Sandra, uh, Sandra uh, mentioned that there are no second generation Christians, and that's exactly right. We cannot make that decision for our children. I want to be very clear with that. They must come to Jesus Christ. They must follow the way on their own initiative. But parents are there. God has placed parents in their way to help influence them to make the right decisions. And that's what we want to talk about today. What can we as parents do to help them make the right decisions? How can we influence them 
to make the right decisions. Let's go to the passage of Scripture that we had last time, Ephesians chapter 5, sorry, Ephesians chapter 6, and then also one verse out of Proverbs. Ephesians 6, 1 to 4, it says, Children, obey your, your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you, and you may live long on the earth. And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Now the King James would use the phrase nurture. Bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. I'm going to be referring today to nurture rather than training, but it's one and the same words. <clears throat> then back in Proverbs 22, verse 6 is a verse that many parents probably have been a bit disillusioned with this verse because of what it says. But I want to, I, we, we want to break this apart and maybe help us understand it in a little different context. Proverbs 22, verse 6, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. If the theory that we proposed in our last message is true, that we should have the goal of parenting, the vision of parenting, should be to have children who are lovers of God, who love God supremely. If that theory is true, then there must be a way to help us achieve it. And I'm here to say this morning that there is a way, I believe. God lays out a way. Because the mere fact is that our children are the offspring of Adam. And not just Adam, me too. And that poses a problem. And, uh, and, and, and their hearts then, because of that, are bent away from being a friend of God. Their hearts are bent away from that. So the heart of a child tends to satisfy itself before it thinks of others. In other words, their natural inclination is not to be a lover of God. The natural inclination is for them to be a lover of self. So, in what context do we have this passage of Scripture that we want to look at today, or that we, that we have as our text? And I want to talk about the context just briefly here. I would propose to you this morning that God did give us some very clear goals, but, but it, is, it, it rallies itself around the context of a theme that addresses several, seven different relationships. If we go back in chapter 5, and the end of chapter 5, starting in verse 22, we see the relationship of the wife to a husband relationship. Talks about wives and how they should relate to their husbands. Right following that, we see the relationship of how husbands should relate to their wives. And right mingled in both of those subjects is how the church is, relates to Christ. And then going on into chapter 6, the passage that we read this morning, we have the child-to-parent relationship, and then he flips that around in the parent-to-the-child relationship. 
And then right after that, he addresses another two subjects, and that is the employee to the employer relationship. And then, of course, he turns right back and he talks about the employer to the employee relationship. Seven different, seven different uh, subjects that are um, that rally around this whole uh, I, this whole concept that he teaches here. But if these seven relationships are to function properly, they must be executed. It must take place in the context of verse 21 in chapter 5. And verse just before he starts into these seven relationships, verse 21 he says, and, and he builds up a case, and I'm not going to take the time to go back even a little further. I'm just going to pick up the last, the, the, there in verse 21, where it says, submitting to one another in the fear of God. It is only in this context that these relationships work. I, I, it is inevitable that when there is a relationship, a failed relationship, uh, there is, it, it is on the part of one or both parties not submitting to each other. You can go, I think, to almost any failed relationship. And somewhere along the way, there's a failure to submit yourself to one another. By the way, Brother Caleb, I want to bless you this morning for your honesty. Because that's where it starts. When we're just humble enough to say, you know what? I just botched it. I just blew it. And we're going to talk about that even later on. But I'm just telling you here this morning, let me just interject this right away. That if you as parents, one of the key factors to raising sons and daughters to be lovers of God is for you just to be honest and open enough to admit your failures. Humble enough to do that. Obviously, it starts with my submission to God. And whenever there is a breach in a relationship, a good question to ask myself is whether I am under submission to my authority, and especially my authority to God. A pastor just recently lamented to me about a situation in their congregation where there are those who are, who are coming against what the leadership is trying to promote. And it occurred to me, I was vaguely familiar with a certain experience that happened several years ago in his own life where, where this pastor uh, made a choice that in some ways um, demonstrated a rebellious spirit. <laughs> um, when, when there is a breach... In the relationship, we've got to ask ourselves some tough questions. If you have an employee that ruffles your feathers, I would encourage you to just take inventory to see whether you are violating an area of submission to people over you. When you feel like your wife is not submitting to your leadership, probe your heart to see where you are failing to submit to others and to God. Youth, when you butt heads with your parents on issues that you think they don't respect you in, check your heart to see 
where you violated an area of lacking in submission. And yes, parents, if there's a breach in the relationship with your child, we must ask the same kinds of questions. Where have I violated submission? Is my relationship with my spouse in such a state that my children are picking up on the same attitude? Am I bucking principles or standards of the church that, that the church deems necessary? Is my relationship with God suffering and hence breaking down the relationship with my children? These are the kinds of questions we need to ask ourselves. Submission in this passage here, where it says submitting to one another in the fear of God, submission in this context is a military term that emphasizes being under the authority of another. But the word does not connote a forced submission. Rather, it emphasizes a voluntary submission to a proper authority. So it's not something that's forced. It's something that we voluntarily do on our own. But even more important than the whole concept or idea of, of submission of greater importance than a voluntary submission is the duty of those who are in authority. The argument remains that serving is of much greater importance than being in authority. Serving is of much greater importance. When I hear a father demanding that his children respect him, I conclude that they've already missed the mark because respect must be earned it cannot be demanded so what then is the good antidote to this respect slash submission relationship I want to go back to the text that we have uh, that we read and I want to pick up on three different segments of parenting responsibilities. And by the way, I want to just say this morning that what I want to teach this morning are maybe not so, many, so much, um, um, uh, it, it, it rallies more around concepts than actual uh, directives, okay? So I want, to give, I want to put out a concept to you. And I'd like to go back to the, the, the first one in, in picking up the word admonition or uh, uh, nurturing or, or uh, 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 training, the initiative to nurture. And I'd like to break this out as I've looked at this passage of Scripture. I've taught on this before in, in various settings. But I see this, this nurturing, this training happening at the early stages of a child's life, from birth, maybe up to five, six, possibly seven, it's sort of, you know, it's, there's no exact time there, but the early stages of a child's life. And then the next one is admonition, bringing them up in the admonition of the Lord. And that stage then shifts uh, as the child grows older, possibly seven to, to into the teens where we admonish, we, we nurture less and we admonish more. And then I'd like to pick up on the last verse that we read in Proverbs, and I'd like to talk about that phrase where it says, um, in the way he should go, that phrase he should go, is actually a term that uh, uh, is, is 
completely different from our English rendering of it. And, uh, and, and we'll talk about that. And that process has to do with influence. And that happens as we look at the goal that we want to achieve for our families. So let's back up and let's start out with this whole idea of nurturing. What that means. Fathers, train up your child. That's the wrong, that's not the right way. Um, and you fathers, provide not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture, bring them up in the training. This idea of nurturing has to do with education or training, uh, disciplinary correction, chastening, and uh, that's sort of the idea of what this nurture means. Nurturing, to some degree, is maybe the most critical stage of the three that we're going to talk about today because it creates the bedrock, it creates the foundation, as it were, for the remaining stages of life. So in this, in this chart that we used previously, and, and, and I'm, I'm gauging it from, from birth to 18 years old, and we want to see what a parent should be emphasizing at what stage in life. Nurturing, as this chart reflects, takes a high priority right at birth because it is tied very closely to obedience. The instruction that he gave to the children in the beginning of chapter 6. Children, obey your, ch uh, your, your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Nurturing is directly connected to the obeying. And, and so we place that in high priority early in the child's life. Respectively, according to the chart, the emphasis of obedience wanes as the child grows older. I don't go up to my 18-year-old son and I say, Son, you've got to obey me. This, this is the parameter and you've got to obey me. If we do that, we're going, to, we're going to bump into some conflict. But as a, as, a, as a young child, this is right. This nurturing must happen. Now, it's not that we want the, dis, the child to disobey when, when they're 18 years old, but the focus shifts. Or another way to say this, that if by the time the child is 18 years old and he loves God supremely, then there's little need to require obedience because a child who loves God will obey and honor his parents. Three things that I'd like to talk about this whole idea of nurturing. First of all, nurturing carries the idea of corrective discipline. This is the time in the child's life when they learn to obey directives from parents. It's this stage in life when parameters are defined. Yes, it is okay for you. And I think I mentioned this last time. It is okay for you as parents to make decisions for your children at a very young age, unlike the loud voices that refute that idea today. You are the parent, and you know what is best for Johnny. Period. Johnny should not be given the choice of whether he wants green beans or applesauce. 
Because Johnny does not know what is best for him at that age. He will make the decisions based on his natural inclinations to be a lover of self rather than be submitted to what is best for him. So this is not just about establishing authority, although authority is a byproduct of the parent who chooses to nurture their children. This is the age parents when, when physical discipline should be used promptly, and listen to the next one, and age appropriately. Proverbs 13.24 says, He who spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him, what? Promptly. Do not delay when discipline is needed. I understand that there are times... I, I recall that there were times that our children misbehaved and it warranted a discipline. But the setting wasn't right. But don't delay longer than needed. Because what happens? The trouble with waiting is that the situation loses its edge. The longer you wait, the less it seems uh, critical um, if, 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 if it, doesn't, uh, it doesn't seem as bad an hour later as it did right at the time of the, of the infraction. I would also like to interject here the importance for mothers to deal with disciplinary measures during the day rather than waiting for dad to deal with it when he comes home after work. I'm not saying that there's never a time for this, but it should be the exception, not the norm. Because... This action will create a dread for the child to see dad in the evening, and that's not what we want to accomplish with dad. We want them to anticipate dad's arrival home. So moms deal with the child during the day. Again, there were times that because of a certain situation, my wife did want me involved in the situation, but that should be the exception, not the norm. <clears throat> It is also important, and I want to emphasize again, that we use discipline age appropriately. A little swat on the butt of a little uh, infant uh, is an attention grabber for them. We don't need to use a rod at that age. And even a stern voice can help the small infant to understand that there is a, uh, a, a consequence involved in, in the action. But as the child grows older, I would suggest using an inanimate object to discipline. Scripture actually does instruct us to use a rod. And I think it's right that Scripture gives us that instruction because, again, it is important that the child does not connect the hand of the parent with inflicting pain. The hand should be viewed as an object that loves and cares and cuddles and holds. And so that's why I think scripture says, use a rod. You see, what we're looking for in this, in this, in this action is the breaking of the will, not the breaking of the spirit. 
And there's a huge difference. Many people, many parents get these two confused. And I want to explain the difference. Breaking the will is focusing on the Adamic nature that causes the child to demand his or her own way. It's an effort to get the child's heart to turn toward God rather than on himself or herself. In essence, it's a fight between good and evil. Breaking the spirit, on the other hand, redefines the character and possibly even the, the personality of the child, depending on the extent of the discipline, uh, and, and, and redefining that rather than redefining the heart. A child with a broken spirit is a child that develops devious ways to escape the tyranny of his or her authority. In essence, they will either perform, the child will either perform or become excessively rebellious as they grow older, and neither one is a good option. And I would like to just interject here that it is very important that we as parents do not discipline when our own emotions are out of control. And those are the times that I've had to go back to my children when they were young. Say, so you know what? Dad disciplined you when I was angry. And my heart was just as wrong as your heart. And I'm sorry. And these are the times that we have to be very careful that we don't lash out in reaction. We've got to keep a bigger picture in mind. We're trying to raise sons and daughters that love God supremely. And what is it going to take to do that? It's not going to be accomplished when we spank in anger. Secondly, nurturing seeks to address motive rather than behavior. And by the way, some of these thoughts, and, and maybe just a plug for the book, uh, you know, these are some things that I wish I would have understood as a young father, and I didn't until later on in life. <clears throat> through experience, but also a book that was very impacting for me was the book Shepherding a Child's Heart. How many parents, young parents, here have that book? Okay, good, good. Uh, I just really encourage you to read it. Some of these concepts, I've expanded on this idea here, but some of these concepts definitely come from, from, that, uh, from that book. I think there's a lot of good things, some things that we need to re weed through in there, but a lot of good things that are, that, that are said. Nurturing seeks to address motive rather than behavior. It is easy for parents to focus on the behavior of the child rather than on the motive of the heart. Now an example of this is the selfish action of Johnny grabbing a toy from Mary. I don't think there's any, any parent here this morning that wants a, a toy grabbing child, wants to raise a toy grabbing child. And so our tendency is to sit Johnny on our laps and say, now listen to me, if you grab that, child, that toy again, I'm going to discipline you for, for, grabbing that, for grabbing that toy. We're focusing on the action. We're focusing on the behavior. Now, the intention of the parent may be well and good, However, our reason to discipline must be greater than simply not wanting to raise a toy grabber. Behavior only deals with the action. 
If you only deal with the action, then you've only dealt with part of the problem. We must seek what is driving the behavior. Why did Johnny grab the toy? And the reason is that his heart is selfish at its core. The heart is selfish at the core. Hence, we must deal with motive, with the motive of the action. If you only raise outward obedient children, then you're only addressing a surface problem. Nurturing seeks to find ways to help the child see his selfish, self-centered heart. Now, obviously, again, we do this in age-appropriate ways. We don't set our nine-month-old daughter uh, on our laps and, and go into this long dissertation about how corrupt her heart is. But as the child grows older, we help them see what is driving their action. This deals with the character of the child rather than just her behavior, his behavior. Jesus condemned the Pharisees for whitewashing the outside while their hearts were corrupt inside. And in essence, that's what we do with children when we only focus on behavior rather than motive. And by the way, what I'm not seeing this morning is for us to ignore behavior. Behavior is the attention for the parent to say, hey, something is wrong. We don't ignore the behavior. It's, it should be there for a reminder to alert us that something is wrong. In essence, the child is saying that my satisfaction is greater than her satisfaction. And of course, we need to break this down in layman's terms for the child. A wise parent will deal with motives of the heart. Thirdly, nurturing generates regular life rhythms. Parents create stability by incorporating cycles of familiarity that can be expected or dependent upon. One child complained that the only thing that was same in their family was the fact that nothing could be dependent upon. Nothing was same, ever the same, from one day to the next. Mealtimes were always on a different schedule. Family devotions were non-existent. Midweek services were not an option. Sunday morning services were more of an, an obligation than a help. Is there any wonder that this child did not embrace the values of his parents? Or maybe he did. Now that's a thought. We said that nurturing involves education or training. It's important that parents establish times of family, prayer, and devotion with lap babies, but then to also make it interesting enough to make it compelling rather than being a methodical, dreaded experience. Um, maybe just for an ideal. I remember when our children were really small. Uh, I took some washable ma markers, and I took Bible stories, and I drew stick figures on the refrigerator. And, and I sort of had a, a picture all drawn out there of the story before they ever got up. And I just still remember the anticipation that they had. What's the story on today? So it takes a lot of extra energy for us as parents. But listen, it's important for us to establish 
some of those rhythms in our lives, in our family's life. I would suggest to you to make church services a high priority as a part of your regular life rhythms. Church is a good place for children to learn to sit quietly and attentively rather than being passed from one person to the next. It creates discipline, a, a, a commodity that is, is really missing in a lot of society today. Mealtimes is another opportunity to create good, solid family times. And again, I just encourage you to guard against uh, each one fending for themselves and, and eating at different times. I just think that the table, Glenn has a, has a talk that she's given numerous times with some ladies at different groups, and, and, and it's the ministry of the table. And it's a beautiful thought of what happens as we break bread together. Uh, other, other traditional, uh, other traditions that that create rhythms that our our young children anticipate and enjoy. I think it's good for every family to have their its own traditions that the children can anticipate and enjoy. The regular rhythms. These regular rhythms give your children roots. These are the things. This is the place that gives them a, to, uh, an anchor to come back to years later uh, for stability and strength. And so nurturing creates those rhythms in our lives. Well, let's move on to the next stage in life. And that has to do with the admi uh, admonition. Bring them up in the nurture. And then it says, bring them up in the admonition of the Lord. The second instruction here, the, the, the idea of admonition. Admonition uh, carries the idea of a calling to, uh, a calling attention to. That is by mild rebuke or warning. Literally a putting to the mind. When we think about nurturing, or admonition, sorry, this is closely tied to the instruction for children to honor their parents. As the child grows older, we do less nurturing and we do more admonishing. Um, and, 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 the, and the emphasis shifts. It is given a higher priority. Admonition is given a higher priority as the child grows older and the nurturing lessens. Uh, a, a lap child typically needs correction, not admonition. But as the child grows older, he needs less correction and more admonition. Recently at an event where Glad and I were sharing a sister came up and talked to Glad at quite some length and she disclosed the fact that she is still spanking her 12 year old son now all I can say is listen at that age it is probably doing a lot less good than it is doing good um, what has not been achieved up until that age in spanking probably won't be achieved at that age you may achieve outward conformity, but very likely you are well on the way to either lose his, the heart of the child, and particularly 
with the mother-son relationship. In another case, experience that I had with a, with a brother, and he was upset about a certain situation his 13 or 14-year-old son threatened to get involved in. And the father told me that he informed his son in no uncertain terms that if he gets involved in that activity, he will ground him for three to four months. And the sad part is that according to what is visible, it looks like his son is well on the way to be a rebel. You see, we have to be very, very careful how we approach our older children. There are several things that we need to understand about admonition. Admonition seeks correction through appeal. We begin to entreat the heart of the child with appropriate persuasion to take proper steps of action. We call attention to wrong responses and action. We pause long enough to help the child process his or her motives. And maybe that's part of the problem. Maybe we should stop right here that maybe we're just too busy to do this. You know what? Admonition takes a long time. And I think all of you know our children quite well. And I have a daughter that takes me about three seconds to get to her heart. I have another daughter that takes me about three-quarter of an hour to get to her heart. It takes time. I have to set time aside and say, look, it's time we have a, a mother or a, a daughter-father chat. And I just know I might as well slot out an, uh, an hour, hour and a half because she just doesn't open up very easily. The other one, three seconds, boom, I'm right to the bottom of her heart. Children respond differently, but it takes time. Admonition takes time. We talk about the why. Why did they do this? We talk about how their actions affected those around them. We encourage them to consider where their choices will lead them. We appeal to the conscience as well as to the heart. We lead them into a discussion that will help them see the error of their way. And we certainly help them see their bent towards self-pleasure rather than pleasing, that of pleasing God. That's what takes place when we admonish our children. We do it through appeal. Secondly, admonition shifts from correction to encouragement. My grandmother raised 12 children, which my mom was one of them, and she lived to the ripe old age of 91 years old. In her wisdom, she pulled me aside one day, and she told me that if she had parenting to do over again, she would use the words, no, less. In essence, what she was regretting is that she wasted so much time telling her children, what not to do, that she missed out on positive correction. I mulled over my grandma's advice significantly. I was still a quite young father at that time, and I realized there was wisdom in her insight. Someone once said that a proper balance, a proper ratio 
uh, between words of praise and criticism should be 10 to 1. Uh, for every word of correction, there should be 10 sincere words of praise spoken. I don't know if this is completely accurate or not. I certainly can't point to any scripture that would verify that ratio. But I am reminded of the passage in, in, in Proverbs 25, 11, where it says, A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in settings of silver. You see, our stoic German roots tend not to hand out praise very readily, lest we become proud. And I just want to acknowledge that we have failed in this area. Uh, many times we've failed in this area. By the way, there is a difference between genuine praise and flattery. Let me explain it. Praise, speaking words of praise, speaking words of commendation to areas uh, your child has the ability to control, areas of character, is, is, is genuine praise. When you talk to your child about, about areas in his or her life that they have the ability to control, that is genuine praise. When I see my son cleaning the garage, I can go to him and say, son, you did a great job cleaning the garage. You stuck right with it. What am I doing? I'm addressing diligence, right? You stuck right to it. Diligence, by the way, is a choice of the child. He can develop that. And not only did you stick right to it, you cleaned every nook and cranny. Thoroughness. That is his ability to control. He can control it. So when I praise him for a, a job well done, it is something that he chose to do on his own. That's praise. Flattery is speaking words of praise to, a, to an area outside of the child's ability to control. When I say to my, my daughter, you are smart. Uh, intelligence is a gift of God that God gives. We don't, we don't order I, our IQ. Uh, that's not something that we re, uh, produce. So knowing the difference between praise and flattery is, is important, but lavish out the praise. That's what admonition does. And there's a lot more probably that could and should be said about admonition. But I want to wrap it up with the last one. The last segment is referring to that, um, to that phrase in, in Proverbs chapter 21 where it says, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old he will not depart from it. I've used the word influence. I'm choosing to use the word influence to, to, to appropriate this phrase. The, the, the word he should go literally means the mouth or, the, or uh, specifically the side uh, or the edge. The edge or the side. That's what that phrase means. When we think about influence, I'm told that when a Hebrew mother wanted to wean her child from milk to other foods, she would first chew the food really good in her own mouth. And then, don't gag on this, then she would take some of that ground food out of her mouth, put it on her finger, take it to the child's mouth, and reach back, way back into the mouth, and place it on the side of the child's mouth 
and it would be forced to swallow the food. Hence, it would acquire a taste for the food. Moms and dads, you have the ability. That's a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful picture uh, that, of, of what we want to accomplish in the last stage of parenting. As we move from nurturing and through admonition, we then call on all of our resources to influence our adult children to make good and wise decisions. Influence points the child in the way he should go. I mentioned in the last message that a parent cannot force a child to be a lover of God. I also mentioned it here in the beginning. It is their decision. But we guide them with our lifestyle as we share our victories and our struggles with them. And I would just come back again and say what I, what I mentioned to Caleb. One of the greatest gifts that we can give our children is for us as parents to admit our failures. I don't know how many times I've heard bitter young men say to me, Dad was never wrong. Dad was never wrong. Not only have I heard these words from bitter young men, I've heard the cry of broken old men still locked in their heart by fathers who, who refused to admit a mistake. And so fathers, this morning I just plead with you, and parents, mothers as well, I plead with you to apologize when you have done wrong. It will help gain their trust. Think of it this way, a child will instinctively trust the parent. That's why we can set a small infant or a little toddler on an elevated perch and tell them to jump into our hands. Why do they do it? Because they have no premise or ability to think that you will not catch them. You've gained their trust by never letting them fall, but miss them one time and what happens? Set them back on the perch, will they jump? Of course not. No, because they are connecting that jump to a missed fall or a missed catch. You don't lose the child's heart when you make a mistake. Listen to this very carefully. You don't lose the child's heart when you make a mistake. You lose it when you fail to admit to the mistake. Children are very quick to forgive. I just remember one time, and maybe I've used this illustration. I don't remember if I did or not, but Austin was just, I think, two years old. And uh, he was very inquisitive. He's always had his nose right in the middle of everything. And and Glad was at home, and she had opened a can of something, left it there on the counter, and, and the lid had fallen in, and, and somehow he got up there on the counter, and he put his finger in there, and then he went to pull it out, and it just laid open his finger. And I just remember thinking, I, I, we just both felt so horrible. Terrible parents, right? And I took, we took him in, because it needed stitches, and old Doc Graber. Many of you know him. And I was lamenting about this pain, you know, and oh, it's just like, I just felt so bad. And I remember old Doc just looking at me. He says, well, I want to tell you, he said, in his old drawn-out drawl, you know, he said, I just want to tell you that children forget pain very easily. And that always stuck with me. I just thought, no wonder Jesus said, lest you become like a child, you cannot see the kingdom of God. 
We don't forget pain that easily, but children do. And even as we make mistakes as parents, that, that failure is quickly forgotten if we go back and say, you know what? I, I'm just, I need Jesus Christ just as much as you do. I need Jesus Christ just as much as you do. Parents can shatter the innocence of a child. Maybe one of the most devastating ways is when a father sexually violates his daughter. The very person in that girl's life that should create safety, a safety network, is now jeopardized and she becomes very, very vulnerable. Sexual abuse is a horrible, grievous sin. Physical and verbal abuse are also actions that can scar the heart for life. Fathers who rage against their children or their spouse, for that matter, in uncontrolled fits of anger, have no clue what gaping wounds he inflicts on his family. And only the blood of Jesus Christ can heal those injuries. So, influence, our responses, make a huge difference on how our children respond. And then lastly, sorry I had that, uh, I should have put that up, I missed that. The last one then is that influence calls for consistency from the parents. Your consistent lifestyle is the antidote to your child's consistency. If your goal is to build a mini empire here in this kingdom, your goals or your 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 child will pick up on those values and quite certainly will adapt to them as well. If your goal is governed by what other people think, what are other people thinking about me, rather than what God is thinking about me, your child will probably most likely gauge his whole life or her whole life thinking of what other people think about them rather than on what God thinks about them. If you balance your life, if you place greater emphasis on a strong work ethic than it does on maintaining a personal relationship and devotional and prayer time with the Lord, then it is quite possible that your children will rise up early in the morning but not to pursue time with the Lord, rather to pursue the almighty dollar. See, our values get transmitted. Good values and bad values are influenced. If your life, however, is governed by serving God and serving others, if you love God supremely, it is quite likely that your children will love God supremely. Let's pray and then I'll let Keith close. Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, we come before you this morning thanking you and praising you for designing the family. Children are such a blessing. And Lord, none of us deserve them in any way. But Father, we also pray for every parent, especially the young parents here this morning. And uh, they are inundated with much false teaching out there. And I would just pray a hedge of protection around their hearts and around their lives and the way that they think and reason and how they raise their families and that they would commit themselves, that they would parent with purpose, the purpose of expanding your kingdom, raising sons and daughters that are, are soldiers for Jesus Christ. Give them the tenacity, the strength, the endurance to do the job well. We commit them to you. In your name we pray. Amen.